I would like the benefit of your eye. So what do I do when my eye starts to wander? It's not adorable to pretend like you're not adorable. She's a bit of an eccentric, isn't he? Don't give up so easily. I was just making conversation. You can change it if you want to. Problem is, I don't know if you don't want to do this here or you don't want to do this at all. You need someone in a skirt. Everybody does. What do you do? What do you make? You grow bullshit. Welcome to Mad Men Men, the weekly show where we discuss a show that used to come out weekly. Each week, we take a look, or a close look, I should say, at an episode of the AMC series Mad Men, which ran from 2007 to 2015. And we are changing the conversation of the show all these years later, where none of us, or one of us, is a first-time watcher of the show. I'm butchering it this week. One of us went through it one time back when it was airing, and then there's me who watches it every few minutes. I'm John Negroni, and let me tell you something about Mad Men. Because as usual, you're turning it into something about podcasts. Sorry, I have one more. They want me because I have all the podcasts from the same scene. So, And there's Will Ashton. And Will, it is not adorable to pretend like you're not adorable. Oh, God, my head. Why am I bleeding? Fenderbender. Oh. And hello there, Mike Overholz. You know, when it comes down to it, who's really hosting this podcast anyway? I guess I'm really concerned about Will. That wasn't a bit. He's bleeding. We know why. We know why he's late with this episode. He was spending time with his family reading the Bible. I do have one more. You're good. Get better. Stop asking for podcasts. Every time I turn around, you've got my hand in your podcast. Yeah, that's some honest advice I would give John Negroni. Yeah, that's literally us to you as you want to start the ninth podcast podcast. Uh, this week we're talking about season three, episode seven. I have that right, right? Yes. Se- see, okay, yeah. Episode seven, aptly titled 723. Uh, this one was directed by Daisy Von Schurler Meyer, who I don't think has ever directed an episode of the oh, show before. I was going to say, I was so excited to see her name because I just saw Party Girl uh, earlier this summer for the first time. Are you time. a fan? Well, yeah. I mean, I just, um, I had been meaning to watch Party Girl for a long time. And that's like her, like, claim the fame, like her indie novelty film. Yeah, yeah. In the 90s. Um, I like the soundtrack of that movie. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen any of her work since then. I, I don't think she's made a movie in a long time. She, yeah, I don't know if she's made movies in a while. I know she also made, like, a Madeline movie with Francis. Mm-hmm. Dorman. She's worked on a lot of shows though, uh, like Mad Men, and she's worked on uh, like Yellow Jackets, uh, one of the most recent uh, shows, and Walking Dead, a lot of AMC stuff. Uh, but yeah, she directs this one, and uh, this episode was written by Andre Jacquemetin and Marie Jacquemetin and Matthew Weiner, uh, the Jacquemetins, of course, long time. Mad Men writers. This episode came out September 27, 2009. Takes place July 20th, uh, July 20th, July 23rd, 1963, uh, as the title helps us remember. And uh, this episode, we do have a perk in the ratings. So if you all recall, when we were at The Fog, episode five, we were at 1.75 million. Uh, then Guy walks into an advertising agency. It, it you know, mowed down the competition, but it, it went down a little bit. 1.57, it lost a foot. Uh, but then we're back up to 1.73 with this episode. So guys, Michael Overholz, for once we're going to start with you. This episode of Mad Men, some people say it is the first masterpiece episode of Mad Men. Are you of that opinion? Uh, no, I'm not. I wouldn't call this a masterpiece. I think, I think it's interesting because of its narrative structure. Um, I think I like when Mad Men takes swings like this, like they did with Three Sundays or um, things like that, where it's just a little bit different and you're trying to piece together a bit of the puzzle while also getting a lot of that 
um, characterization from the characters you really like. You know, I'm liking that we're getting more of Peggy and interesting things there. Um, also, just I love when Peggy gets her rocks off, no matter who it's with. <laughs> um, just because she deserves it, you know. She shouldn't ask. She shouldn't ask for things, including orgasms. Well, uh, so you're happy with uh, with her going uh, a little far with Duck there? I'm not happy because I mean, I really don't like Duck, but I'm, I'm a support. I'm a support. I'm a feminist. I'm going to support my girl even through her bad decisions. You're just glad she can. Look yeah. at it this way: one way or another, she's going to get a raise. <laughs> God. Mm. God damn. Now, Will, you did text me where you said, John, I think this is a masterpiece episode of Mad Men. Can you bring it up on the show that I, that I said that? And I said, sure, Will, but we'll probably start with Mike so he can agree with you. Uh, do you have a response? Uh, I really do like this episode. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know what makes people think this is like the first masterpiece episode. I feel like I was stronger overall on the fog of the episodes I've seen so far in season three. Um, but no, I mean, I think it's been on a really strong run like these last three episodes. Like it, yeah. it really feels... Like the seasons, uh, they come into fruition really well and like kind of establishing what I imagine people really love about the show if it wasn't already uh, established at this point. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think the the show has been definitely kind of mulling on, you know, like the same sort of ideas, certainly about identity and balance of work, home life. And I feel like this one is probably one of the more audacious ways of doing it in a way that's like not only obviously stimulating intellectually and uh, emotionally, but um, also just seems to like really kind of challenge the characters and, and have some interesting ideas about where they are in a way that feels very organic and feels like it's evolving the show in a very natural but meaningful sort of way. Yeah, you, you mentioned identity, you mentioned work-life stuff, as you both have alluded to. And, and yeah, I, I agree with you guys completely. I'm a, I'm a big fan of this episode. I, I like it more and more when I watch it. I, I think the reason people really like it, I think, is because of, well, I mean, when we go through trivia, I mean, there's a lot of trivia in this episode. It's very dense, but also just the way it's filmed. Uh, Weiner has said that he wanted it to feel like, like this episode to feel like a film noir. Uh, you can really sense that. Um, like you notice that in the three sort of like short stories we're going through, they are limited to the perspective of the character. So it is breaking the structure and the format, right? You're not, you know, in a scene with Don and then you shift perspective to Pete. It's, always from Don's point of view, like every scene. So when you're flashing back and forth, it very much is in within that kind of structure. And it's a, it's a stylistic choice that I think it fits the themes of the episode. But Mike, you, you, the themes of the episode, what do you think this episode is about? You, you didn't, Will thinks it's about identity. <laughs> Mad Men being about identity. Why would he say that? Yeah, um, I, I do not see how that tracks at all. This is, have you guys seen what's been on Twitter lately? Mad Men is a workplace comedy. Okay. Uh, situational it's it's lighthearted you know it's uh no theme of the episode i'll be honest it's it's a sometimes i struggle with that just because i know what happens overall uh and so i'm just kind of watching the episodes differently here's what i'll say i find myself watching these episodes differently than the first time i watched them right because I'm, i'm i'm attaching so many things especially in this episode to these overarching themes that you're going to see throughout the rest of the series that i think um i don't zoom in just on the episode as well as maybe i did the first time um because I'm not watching this one episode. I'm seeing this one piece of what I, I've seen the whole puzzle and now I'm admiring like single pieces that make up different parts of it. Yeah. Like we won't, we won't give anything away. Will Ash and we care about you, but there are like direct links between this episode and the finale of the season, the finale of the show. I mean, it's all over the place. 
And so there, there's a lot of stuff you should pay close attention to or keep in your little back pocket. I know it's tough and we're not binging it. So sure. by the time we finish the show, you're going to be like, I don't know what happened in 723. Mm-hmm. Was that when JFK yeah. got hit? <laughs> I mean, I do appreciate that this episode, I mean, at least as far as the ones uh, we've seen, does have a lot of like direct callbacks to like several episodes in season two and three, yeah, uh, even set. down to like, what was it? Uh, the jet set gets directly called yeah. out with the North American aviation. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously like, like my own Kentucky homes, like a lot, but like, like him even just getting those pills, like that's a callback to like him getting the blood pressure medication yeah. at the beginning of the season reds. two. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I did want to kind of uh, highlight on something Mike was saying about, you know, this being in jazz, but like a, a workplace comedy. That reminded me, you know, how like on the Emmys they used to do, or maybe they still do. I don't know. Like those type of things where like characters from one show, like appear in another vice versa. They do anything with that. And like the office, since they're on at the same time, like anything where like Don Draper is in, you know, the definitely uh, did. Dunder Mifflin thing or whatever, or, or subsequently like Michael Scott is somehow in the sixties with, Cooper and Sterling and all that. I think the literal 2009 Emmy opening, it's like Roger Sterling doing a talking head at the office. I think uh, that's the same one where Creed buys meth from Jesse from Baker. Okay. I, I remember that. I didn't know if there was anything with Mad Men, though. It just seemed kind of an obvious pull. Yeah, I think this, is certainly, this thing is like you can't say anything to secretaries anymore or something like that, like referring to <laughs> Pam. I don't know. Anyways. Um. I think my read on this episode is that it's sort of about the ways that different people react to becoming an adult, coming of age. You know, in Betty's case, we see her taking risks and doing things that she's not supposed to do, that kind of like teenage rebellion, right? We see it kind of mirrored with the hitchhikers, for example. Uh, And then I think with Peggy, it's her, you know, reacting to what it's like to go from you know, this kind of abusive, like emotionally, like father figure, not having a father, uh, sleeping with a bunch of boys like Pete, uh, who can't really pleasure her to having a relationship with an older man and finding a way to sort of like really think about like, you know, is this going to be like the the whole thing with Duck, like kind of challenging her, like, is she going to be stuck in this place? And then with Don, I mean, this episode is just, he he's like, he loses, he loses completely in this episode and he's completely humiliated and brought to a low point. And I think it's because he's reacting to how like when you become an adult, you like signing of the contract is like a metaphor, right? For him signing his like commitment to where he is. He can't run away. He doesn't have the freedom that he had. He has to kind of like be that guy, you know, in the plaid shirt at his daughter's eclipse thing where we see him trying not to be that, you know? So that, that's my read. I, I think that it's a, uh, it, it's a pretty brilliant episode in the way that it like weaves those stories together so well that you almost forget, right? That it's like three separate things and not like this one laddering kind of moment when we get to the end to see how everything like finishes out. I was curious. Well, I mean, when you saw yeah. Peggy in that afterglow, did did you know who it was? Did you have any guesses? What went through your head? Uh, I mean, when the beginning of the episode happened, I had no idea. But midway through, when you like see her again in bed and knowing that she was having so many conversations with Duck and like thinking about Duck and talking about 
Doc. I was like, is she going to sleep with Doc? And I was just like, oh boy. When she when that <laughs> phone call happened, I was like, Peggy, I agree with Mike and stuff. Like, I'm always happy when uh, Peggy can get in the sack and like kind of, uh, you know, as he kind of crudely said, get her rocks off. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I also kind of feel like he, she can do better than this. Like, what's she doing here? I agree. I agree. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think the eclipsing, as you mentioned, is a sort of fascinating tie around for this episode in the sense like everyone is kind of trying to desire or look at the thing that they can't have or, or feel um, like they want something that is not tenable in their grasp. And Hilton has the wandering eye. Yes. Yeah. The wandering eye. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Dawn wanting that independence or that that sense of like maintaining the option to not be tethered to anything. Peggy kind of wanting affirmation or some sort of uh, desire to like be able to elevate or move up the ranks. Uh, Betty kind of wanting some sort of male figure that can, you know, emotionally, intellectually, romantically stimulate her. Uh, even um, Suzanne, I think that's the name of the teacher, right? Yeah, Suzanne. Kind of, yeah, kind of also wanting like a, a an adult figure, a man in her life. Uh, but also not really funny at the same time. Like kind of- that's not my read of her character. I get the sense that she is a very like she is like a fully realized sexual adult, sure. and that she's kind of like she knows how to play hard to get. That's what I'm saying. What I was trying to say was that like I feel like it's about kind of that attraction. Like the, she's like more into like the flirting than like actually kind of settling down or being with Dawn, and like she's almost kind of attracted to that mystique. And she calls him out, right? And she breaks the mystique. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like a fascinating kind of push and pull. So, yeah. It's something like she wants and doesn't want. So, it's, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's Weiner who compares her to... He, he, it was either Weiner or one of the writers said that, like, she's a lot like Joan in that way. Like, you can, like, kind of compare them pretty easily. Yeah. No Joan in this episode, I just realized. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's not at Sterling Cooper anymore. I mean, maybe... She, I mean, that's it, isn't it? There's not a lot of, uh, there's a little bit of Pete, not a lot. We don't have a lot of the, uh, the, uh, the side guys. We don't have a lot of Cosgrove, Harry, everything. It's focused. Like it's a very focused episode. We really stick with the crew. Uh, the, the main three here, Mike, we've said a lot. Oh, four or I, five. I, hey. mm. Yeah. With also Connie and, uh, Suzanne. Mike, I, Mike, I don't know where you, where you stand on all that. I mean, and I wasn't sure if there was like a, a story here that you thought stuck out more than the others. Yeah. So before I say anything, I, I will argue to, to Will when he said that Betty can do better. Uh, evidence has not shown that Betty can do better. I, I would implore you to ask to name one person that she's fucked that she should have because it's, you know, a baby and, and going into college, Pete and Duck basically at this point. Well, and we're lucky she saying, didn't fuck Tom Hanks' son. Yeah. I'm not saying <laughs> she has had better. I'm saying she could do better. Who's done what? Where's decisions? <laughs> or uh, Peggy, excuse me. Well, I mean, I think we've seen Peggy be a mature professional businesswoman, have discerning taste in some circumstances, right? Sure. You know? Yeah. No, okay. So that leads me to so I think it's easy to think Don's the more interesting plot line in this episode, but sneakily it is uh Peggy. Because what I what I love about this and her interaction first with Dawn and then what happens with Duck is that right everybody assumes she screwed her way to the top at at Sterling Cooper right 
going from secretary to copywriter next to her former boss. That's always been the, the scuttlebutt around the office, but it hasn't, right? She, she feels like she worked for that. She worked her ass off and that she would be in a place where she can have that relationship with Dawn and ask about things. And she feels like that's her mentor, right? So when she gets chastised, what does she do? She turns around, goes to the other boss, and sleeps with them immediately. And I don't, th- I don't think that's an intentional decision as much as I think it's subconscious. But it is a full 180 of everything that they people thought of her to get to that point, and now she's kind of self fulfilling that. And we'll see what how, how she took that. Was, she took chose one path at Sterling Cooper, and now I think we're going to see her. This is a start of the other path that was an option for her, like kind of succumbing to the pressures that the rest of the ad men would have just as a woman. Uh, and I, I just think that's terribly interesting. Well, I think um, Duck kind of says it without saying it, that she knows and he knows, they all know that she's always going to be looked at as a secretary. And that's a very typical thing at Sterling Cooper. Like she's always going to be viewed as a secretary there. And that in order for her to not be viewed that way, to be viewed as a person who earned her way to where she is, she has to go to another agency. And that happens in real life. That happens when you're in an office and somebody gets promoted from a position that is like, you know, secretary or janitor or anything like that. It can be really, really challenging for the people who knew where you come from to see you kind of get to that next level. Depends on the workplace too, obviously. But yeah, I think that that is uh, clearly what's going on in her head where she just feels like, her going to another agency would be not necessarily like a wandering eye, but more sort of like moving on, you know, breaking up with Sterling Cooper and trying to, you know, this is her time. Well, I was going to say, going off of that, what Mike was saying, um, when I was reading uh, the Matt Zollerseis book, he makes a really interesting note that like kind of going off what we said before about like the show always dealing with the idea of work and home life. This episode in particular has a lot to do with like the intertwining of work and sex and like with peggy in particular it's this idea of like she's literally getting in the bed with like the other potential uh job employer with duck and like even throughout the episode uh you know like connie has like very sexually charged language when he's like talking to dawn kind of formally and informally uh like roger's obviously like kind of breaking bounds and like you know kind of having this sort of like taboo conversation with betty and he's had a kind Speaking of, of compl- callbacks right to the first season yeah, with him right. with uh yeah they're kind of complicated history but then also with betty um there's that uh conversation that she has with i think his name's henry the the guy that she meets with where it's henry like, this, like francis i know right? him mm-hmm. um i mean obviously it's like kind of work for her like she's taking charge of the committee which is also kind of fascinating considering and you know going back to season one when she was like chastising um you know like bishop ellen yeah for uh well, francine too they both yeah 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 oh yeah, yeah she's on the, the the committee as well but yeah but, i mean like there's um a guys of like both uh betty and henry are like meeting up under like like talking about business as it were but uh it is you know like kind of a secret date and mm. you know like they're trying to act like it's not but it is and uh, yeah, I mean, it's this idea of like intertwining of like business in its own way is also kind of a negotiation the same way that, uh, you know, sex or flirtation can be. It's this idea of like you know, kind of finding a, a common ground, like this idea of like interacting with another person, flirting, being kind of like open to different things and all this stuff. Yeah. 
standing your ground. And yeah, it's just like a, a, a way that in addition to the eclipse kind of ties all these different characters and their desires and motivations as it were um, uh, together, which, yeah, I think also makes it really another way this episode comes really tighter and, and stronger. Yeah. The, the key scene that proves out what you're saying is when Don looks to Betty um, when they're talking about the contract, they're fighting about it. And he says that like, let me tell you something about business because as usual, you've made it something about yourself. And he's trying to separate the two things. And then when he says, I have all the power, they want me, but they can't have me. That's when she correctly like lays him out, you know, lays him out like duck laid out Peggy and is like, yeah, why would that be about me? Right. And sort of, she's kind of bringing that into, into the fruition. And then, yeah, he runs off and uh, it's uh, yeah. Yeah. Totally agree with that. Mike, I know that, you know, I know you're a big, you ship Betty and Don. You're, you're rooting for these two kids. Um, I don't know. What, what do you, what do you make of the Betty stuff in this episode? I mean, it, we see her get a really cool couch. Would you, would you consider that a cool couch? I, it's Victorian. It's uh it's hot. I would say that, uh, another callback to another episode, right. Where, uh, you know, she's, they've been talking about decorating everything. Terrytown, you know, it's kind of brought up again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the antique store that the kids didn't want to go to. Oh. I was going to say uh, about the couch, and I can already hear you guys when I say this being like, what are you talking about, Will? Stop it. You're dumb, whatever. But does the couch have a sort of like vaginal quality to it? Or is that me reading too much into the Freudian? masturbation couch. What was it? It's a masturbation couch. Sure, yeah. Any couch should be a masturbation couch. Sure. Uh, I think this one, it's like we, we see her kind of starting that motion. Well, so I mean, right? yeah, like there's like that, like it looks kind of like, you know, vaginal in shape, but also like, yeah, like when we see her uh, laying down the couch, like there's that prominent shot of her, like kind of like rubbing her legs well, and all that's that. That's the point, right? I think there's yeah. a, there's a reason why she fills the hearth was empty before she fills it with something that reminds her of this man. And then also the Victorian era is all about sexual repression. Mm-hmm. And so like that repression is what like brings out things like wanting to masturbate and, you know, having a kind of like a, a sexy kind of persona or sexy like agency in a time where things are more repressed, which yeah. is like very much the sixties contrasting right. with the Victorian era. Yeah. But also like the, um, like when she has a decorator, uh, they, they keep highlighting like the fireplace and then the couch ends up being right, right in front of the fireplace and it's like supposed to be quote unquote like the center of the ha- of the room or whatever and like they're using it as a kind of like cover you know whatever it may be like this hole or the center this emptiness whatever it may be i don't know oh well, and good- you'll notice no no right because what you'll notice that when don walks in at the end of the episode and he looks at betty and uh he, he doesn't even notice the couch he doesn't notice that this guy has come in and filled the hearth it like it just doesn't you know we, we they even establish that he has an eye he notices this stuff but he just doesn't uh-huh. care you're not interested at all. Sorry, Mike. And, we we teed you up. L- lucky, then... <laughs> yeah. It's l- lucky for for Betty though that Don had her move the end table to the other side, or else the the couch wouldn't fit. That's true. Well put, Mike. Well, well, well put. Thanks. No, I, I think I think the Betty stuff is interesting. Um, you know, because she, she wouldn't have said all that stuff to Don even a season ago, right? Uh, so the fact that she does stand up to him, I also think the Roger call is super interesting because. You know, she seems very on Don's side. So, like, she's still to outwardly, to, like, externally to the rest of the world, you know, playing the housewife and defending Don and, you know, putting Roger in, in his place rightfully. But then Don comes home and she is actually on Don about signing the contract. She's doing the exact thing that Roger wanted her to do, but she's doing it not because 
she's being used by these businessmen anymore, but for her own reasons, right? She is genuinely upset. Why is my husband not telling me about this massive contract? You know, so, uh, yeah, I, I think I she, enjoy she's that. A, she understandably is like, you know, where do you think you're going to be in five years? And I think she recognizes, especially with him, just like blitzing off to California and not saying anything. Like she knows that like, yeah, that resistance that he has to anything that ties him down is, yeah, that, that strikes a very profound nerve in her and rightly so. Um, great episode. I mean, now are you guys seeing why people like this episode so much? There's a lot, there's a lot here. It's good stuff. I like the episode. I'm just, you know, I think masterpiece is a, you know, a term that we should, we should hang on to a little bit. No, I, I agree with that. Um, yeah, I think, um, the other thing we haven't talked about too much in this episode yet is that we, we've mentioned Conrad Hilton, but that opening scene, I really, really love it. I mean, the power dynamics of it, the way that it mirrors Cooper at the end, blackmailing Don and how you'll notice that when Don goes into the office, he sits down in front of Conrad. But then when he, at the end of the episode, when Cooper is in his chair, he doesn't sit down mm-hmm. and you see that that's like his kind of, uh, I guess it's like a little mini rebellion, isn't it? Yeah. I, I do appreciate that. Like, yeah, similar to how, uh, Peggy is trying so hard to like be an adult in this episode. This is probably the most like petulant we've ever seen Don. Like he's just like very craggy and just like irritable and just like yelling at people and like crossing his arms and being like, no, I'm not going to sign that contract. No, I'm not going to sit down and like huffing and puffing and all that. And yeah, I mean, and also I was going to say yeah, uh, a lot of great uh, bird stuff in this episode. That was, that was a lot of fun for sure. He steals the entire episode. Not even, I mean, obviously that ending scene is great. The Sacagawea line. Who, uh, the, who even knows who signed this contract line? Yeah. But I get the... the, 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 the table. But the vegan table and then saying that he was an eccentric man is just so great. He's an eccentric man, isn't he? <laughs> Sitting in front of his sex painting. Like... <laughs> I do. And, you know, I, I, it reminds me a lot. There was that moment, you know, when we did Cinemaholics for the first time and Will came over to sign the contract. I was blackmailing him and everything. And, you know, he, he signed the contract and said, I want no further contact with Michael Overholz. You know, but hey, I mean, here you are now, Mike. I mean, you guys, uh, maybe, maybe there's hope for Don and Roger. I, I mean, don't know. That's the dark history of why Maverick is no longer on Cinemaholics. That when I signed the contract for three more years on the show, I was like, I'm not in contact with Maverick anymore. God damn it. Tough. <laughs> to his credit, it's a pretty good metaphor. I have a lot of trivia to go through, um, I, and we don't have a ton of time. I know we probably all have more to say, so I can maybe hybrid the rest of our convo through the trivia if you guys are interested. It's all chronological. Hey, let's let's change the narrative structure. Let's try something new. Let's do it. I love it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so starting with the Hilton stuff, uh, so... Weiner and them, the crew, they chose Hilton, the brand for this, because they knew in this time period, Conrad Hilton would be a nightmare client for Don. That's like Matthew Weiner's words. And uh, in fact, one of the inspirations for it, too, was the the real life people at Hilton today. They actually came to Matthew Weiner and AMC about like, oh, could you include this ad that we did in the 60s about a Hilton in space? And ultimately, they didn't show the ad or anything, but they kind of channeled that into what we're seeing this season. So fun, fun little extra context for why Hilton is in the show when he is. And oh. uh, Conrad Hilton being a very deliberate choice of a character, yeah. Yeah, and I was going to say, I mean, uh, I found this out through uh, the Matt Zoller's book as well, that 
the three hotels that um, Dawn is trying to like be a client for, two mm-hmm. of them are called Sattler and Wardoff. That's the yeah. names for how they get the Muppets. Hell of a salad. Hell of a cocktail. Um, I was going to say, too, that uh, <laughs> I think um, uh, the word that Matthew Weiner, I think it was Weiner who said this, that they used for, for Conrad to Don is like he's Don's Achilles heel because like you notice like Don just he's he's perturbed a bit by Hilton like he he's struggling with it there, and there's a lot of commentary too that Weiner is given about how especially in this episode he's kind of being greedy about the Hilton business and kind of hiding it from everyone else and holding it to himself out of this like pride because he got this and they didn't and that's another sort of pointing of like how childish he can be I think so um, I want. Yeah, I can I say one thing about Conrad Hilton? I just really struggle with his character design because I think he looks like a birthday party impersonator of Walt Disney. <laughs> sure, sure. That's like, um, Na- or, uh, Mike, have you watched Nathan for you? Oh, yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, like a Bill Gates impersonator. There's like a Walt Disney impersonator, and that's just who Connie is. If, if you Google pictures of Conrad Hilton, like... Or just like Hilton's from from that time, yeah. It's he does not have that that mustache. I don't know. I think I'm glad you brought that up, actually, Mike, because you know Hilton has said that he's from Texas, right? San Antonio before Texas was a state, and he has that kind of like country accent. And again, I think that speaks to why they look at him as a, an Achilles heel for Don, because later in this episode, I mean, we've seen the Don's kind of like hillbilly background get brought up again as an insecurity for him. You know, the ghost of his father, you're telling him, like, what you don't make anything, your hands are soft. And I think that, like, yeah, Conrad kind of taps into some daddy issues for Don and the way that Don taps into the absent father for Peggy. Um, mm-hmm. So there, there's some good stuff there and that we uh, we could thread. Um, I mean, the social media app. DiCaprio, what? No, I said he's Catholic. That's uh, I thought that was mm-hmm. a good one from Peggy, that she, like, <laughs> highlighting his uh, religious background. Yeah. Uh, the water tank that they are, you know, trying like the junior league has there that they're trying to do whatever with i always forget the exact stuff but it is real it's based on a real tank in Austin, new york um i think they call it the pleasantville water tank in this uh it is based on like real events include involving a local reservoir uh these days it's a tourist attraction uh they don't actually use the water for it but like people kind of like picnic around there they turn it into like an ice skating rink i think madman carousel brought this up mm-hmm. um so yeah that's based on real stuff also the junior league that betty's part of does have an age limit so they're they, they kind of fudged like the fact that uh i think that woman was on it but i i don't know the exact details of that my research did not turn up great results um this is one of my favorite pieces of trivia the phone number that betty gives when she's in the kitchen is real so you'll notice they don't do the 555 thing and so matthew weiner said particularly for this episode they try to like buy phone numbers so that they don't have to do the 555 because he thinks it breaks immersion and i think more shows and movies should do that you know spend some spend some cash it, i think it does kind of sell the illusion a bit better can we uh call that number right now if we had more time i actually would do it i would like hook up my phone to the mixer and just like play the voicemail and see what happens probably like somebody would answer and be like congrats you're on mad men right <laughs> they'd be like i'm a huge fan <laughs> i was just at one of Brent, ben cruz trivia nights yeah you should do that um like when you're editing this episode just at the end just call that number and see what happens and record it <laughs> I'll try to remember. I'll try to remember. Um, Bobby hanging up the phone on Betty is pulled straight from Matthew Weiner's childhood. Um, and I, I think a lot of people probably relate to something like that happening. Uh, Mike, you're nodding. Did, did you ever do that? Like, cause we, we're, we're old enough that like we had landlines. We had like that kind yeah. of thing going on. I remember having such strict rules over the phone and like what to do with it, what to say when you answered it. I, it was like a whole thing. Yeah. Overholst residence. What's your favorite movie? 
Well, can I just say what was cool about our phone number is that it sounded like that famous song, 8675309. So now someone's going to call that number while this that's, 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 that's not my That's the song. I didn't say my number. 8675309. When Henry is making the call to Betty, he's doing it from Rockefeller Center, and you can tell because the church in the background of the window is based on a real place, and they were trying to like kind of subtly include that. And also, Rockefeller Center is only a few blocks from Sterling Cooper. So you have a little bit of that extra sort of like, you know, connection to how close Don is to this situation, but doesn't even realize it. Oh, uh, that reminds me, I was also going to say the parallel with, um, you know, obviously Don trying to land a uh, hotel client and also like Peggy having sex and good stuff. Yeah, we're going to, there's a piece of trivia about the hotel we'll get to um, actually. So hold that thought. There was a little bit of conversation about this between Weiner and one of the writers about how contracts were, you know, not the norm in the 60s. But Weiner was like, well, they were, but like, or they, they were not the norm, but they were, would be for a guy like Don. Um, so like when you get to that partner level, like it wasn't something that was like as commonplace as it is today to to have a contract. But the logistics of it, like why they want him to have a contract, that's real. Like, that's like, you know, clearly like if Don, uh, Don could like take hilton's you know take hilton as a client and just like leave the agency so like that's way too dangerous for for cooper roger and lane to uh to have you know without don actually because he secured the business he has a relationship with hilton and they don't and that's kind of crossing this like imaginary line almost or invisible line um the part where we already talked about where cooper put his feet on the table it's a direct directing cue from weiner uh he said that he really wanted to show how much of an oddball uh cooper is robert robert morris's character uh the bakery that they shot uh like where uh the date that isn't a date but is a date between betty and henry it was shot on location it's a real bakery and weiner has said that this is one of his favorite sets because they did such a good job at making it look like it is a 60s bakery but at the time it was new so it doesn't look worn down. It doesn't look like it, a 60s bakery that's like kind of, you know, nostalgic. It looks like, oh, this is a new place and it feels like it's of the 60s. And so always fun to pay attention to when they really pull that off the sets in the show just mm-hmm. in general. I will say uh, as much as I love cheese, I will never understand putting cheese on pie. That's <laughs> yeah. you got to do it, dude. It's great. No. Is it good? Oh, yeah. It just, I feel like I kind of gag a little just even thinking about it. I'm with Will on this one, surprisingly. But also, okay. uh, if you have immature pilots, that's fine. Just say it. I do think it's interesting that Betty eats um, or chooses to eat in this scene um, because that's something for her that she tends to be way more sort of uh, not like she, you know, her relationship with food is very different um, over the course of the show. So I would, I would, I would hold on to that. Well, that, is, that might be significant. Is there any significance um, to like Henry playing with Betty's lighter when she pulls it out of the table? Is there like something I missed there? They're sending messages. Okay. I think she's kind of sending a message to him of like, you know, don't get ahead of yourself, pal. You know, like she's still trying to keep up these certain pretenses, but also yeah. like she's fascinated. We, we didn't mention this, but I mean, you can tell she was obsessed with him because she is like, oh, I see him in the papers and like mm-hmm. easy to miss. But it's like, oh, yeah, you are looking for the guy. You've been yeah. thinking about him. Right. I just didn't know if it was like him lighting her fire or like just something. I, I didn't know if there was something more kind of direct that was kind of going over my head or something. There's something else with a lighter that we're going to get to in a second here, actually. Mm-hmm. But uh, well, first though, uh, the his master's voice uh, thing that Henry references based on an ad from 1908. I know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Betty, Betty gets a little defensive because she's sort of like, well, my husband's in advertising. I, I by extension, you know, uh, but yeah, it's a, the dog and the gramophone as, uh, Henry describes. It's a trademark slogan, his master's voice, uh, for EMI, RCA, and JVC. The, this is really cool to me. The eclipse really did happen on that day where the, uh, the episode takes place with real eclipse. And, uh, also the park where Don is at, like with, uh, the other dads, that is the same park where they shot the maypole scene. You definitely tell. I will say 100%. Whenever um, Betty like looks straight up at the eclipse, I 100% thought about uh, when Trump oh, yeah. did that same thing uh, when the eclipse happened during his presidency. Uh, he even has like kind of a similar kind of face. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and for people who forgot, the maypole scene is uh, when we are introduced to the teacher, uh, where they're dancing around the maypole with Sally and Don touches grass. Uh, more ways than one. Also. They did special like uh, editing tricks. They really saturated the light um, where Betty and Henry are standing to make the light, the eclipse, look like it's a special glow. Um, and also, you'll notice that they they aren't able to really turn around in these scenes. Like there's like a a bus that like is blocking because they dressed up one side of the street, but in typical you know Burbank fashion, uh, the Pasadena, uh, the whole other side is like a lot. You know, it's just you know your typical kind of LA thing. So breaking the illusion a little bit, but uh, they, they find clever ways to do that. You'll notice that car is like in front of the bakery at the very beginning too. And then like when they're walking, it's still there. <laughs> so oh, always fun. I know, I know Mike, you're a big fan of stuff like that. You like that. You like that show, uh, project green light, right? Oh man. I love that green light show. Just the process of making movies is so, or TV shows is so interesting. Yeah. Did you hear that project green lights back? They green lit it. It's back. It's on Max. They just they debuted a new season. Okay. Are you serious? Well, yeah. calm down. You're... Is, it, is it still Matt Damon and Ben Affleck? Oh, that's the thing. Is that it's not Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. It's, it's LCJ. and <laughs> Sorry. No, it's uh, it's like Kimono and Johnny, uh, Gina, Prince Blythewood, uh, wow. I think Issa Rae. Somebody it's a very else. eclectic group, like very like powerful personalities. I love it. I was just like, like I mean, yesterday, I mean, obviously it's going to date the episode, but like Max just like was like, hey, here's a new Soderbergh series. Hey, here's a new Project Greenlight. Here's the new Project Greenlight movie. And I was like, are you going to advertise any of this? And they're like, no. <laughs> I already, well, I already kind of dated the episode when I mentioned Threads, which for all we know, by the time this episode comes out, might not even <laughs> exist anymore. Uh, we'll like, see. Yeah. Th- this is one of the coolest pieces of trivia I have. The Victorian fainting couch we've already talked about. Uh, it is uh, the actual couch in the movie uh, She Done Him Wrong with Mae West. Uh, 1933 it's the where she has that famous line i think it usually gets misquoted but something along the lines of like come up and see me sometime and uh yeah they got that from a prop house in hollywood it's nine feet long and uh it's really cool to see like the couches it's still in such a great condition you know for being uh like so so old and obviously must have been very very difficult to take care of it but uh, i thought that was pretty cool i can't imagine the musk coming off that couch Mm, yeah because of the master bit and uh also uh the hotel thing, well, that you're referring to, like Gray has their meetings in, in hotels. Uh, that's based on uh, real, like real things that would happen back then. Specifically, they, uh, uh, Weiner and them have said, like, oh, we were kind of nervous about like dissing Gray or dissing their office, like where Duck says that thing, like how it like looks awful, uh, and maybe they went a little bit too far. Uh, but it was just like a fun little, fun little tidbit of like how Sterling Cooper differs from gray like gray being in a hotel like conducting their business there does kind of like speak to will what you were talking about like the whole sort of like balancing like the work and the romance um and like finding that really thin line you know well not just romance sex i mean you know 
I know you're, you're sorry. Be- I'm such a romantic at heart, you know, but yes, pleasure, business and pleasure. That's the, the, fra- exactly. the, the terminology. Uh, yep. and then the lighter thing. So <clears throat> there's a moment when, when Don's talking to Roger, Roger's trying to like persuade him to do the contract. Uh, you can see that Don is filling his lighter with uh, Zippo fluid. And uh, they put this in there intentionally because people kept saying, like people who watch the show kept being like, we see Don use the lighter all the time, but he never fills it. <laughs> so they're like, fine, we'll show him doing it in front of Roger to show how disinterested he is in, uh, or how disinterested he is in Roger's pitch about the contract. I mean, that's like one of those things that like, like when people are like, how can we never see characters in the bathroom? So it's just like, it, it's always just sort of like implied, but that's yeah, a fun we'll way get to it. Great. Yeah, <laughs> I do. Can I just say about that scene about talking about Roger? I really like how we go from last week, or if was it last week? Of I'm not even on the chart to him being so concerned about how he they don't think he does anything, but then he doesn't do anything this episode, right? He pisses Don off. He goes about the wrong way with Betty, and then Bert's the one who gets him to sign the contract yeah, in the end. Yeah. Well, I think the thing that he does calling Betty does work ultimately to an extent because it pushes Don, uh, the friction between him and Betty. And I think that helps, um, spur things, but of course it has the consequence of Don no longer wanting to speak to him. Also, there's a lot of jealousy that Roger has both for, for Don, um, in landing the Hilton account, but also the, the David, David Ogilvy book confessions of an ad man, uh, which you can tell Roger's just like, man, why didn't I think of that? You know, building this notoriety for Sterling Cooper by, writing a book that's all about how great i am right right? and so you can really see that like that's something that's like gotten under roger's uh, skin quite a bit and i think that he sort of sees don as the david ogilvy that he wants to be and it's a a huge struggle for him Uh, the actual book they they wanted to fit the book into the show but they couldn't uh, because they hadn't come out yet so that's why they have that line about how roger has the galleys so he has the advanced reader copies makes sense have you read that book yeah, we studied it in school. I went to school for okay. advertising, as the listeners, I think, know at this point. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's very much a book about advertising in the 60s with nuggets of wisdom, but mostly it's about a a man who is really full of himself. A regular Roger Sterling, hence the character, is very much based on a, an amalgamation, I think. Uh, Don Draper and Roger Sterling are like an amalgamation of David Ogilvy in a lot of ways. Mm. Is it worth reading? Depends on like what you're, what you're hoping to get out of it. I mean, okay. I think the historical context of it is more interesting than the like getting anything out of it in terms of the advertising. Like, I feel like a lot of the stuff involving like the advertising is now pretty basic information. It's cultural osmosis uh, through the show as well. But I just think that the the book being of its time is the most interesting thing about it, in my opinion. It has been a long time, though. It's been over a decade since I read it. So I don't know how I feel about it today. I thought it'd be like, um, you know, like the kid stays in the picture, like the Robert Evans book, where it's just like... Let me tell you about what it was like making movies in the seventies. It's like very professional and like kind of splashy and all that. I didn't know if it was like that, but with advertising in the sixties. I won't say it's too dissimilar, quite honestly. Uh, speaking of books, Peggy mentions that she has read Conrad Hilton's book. And so she's talking about his autobiography, which came out in nineteen fifty-nine, and it's called Be My Guest, which would go on to be a a, a smash hit single for the Beauty and the Beast soundtrack. He has a book? Yeah, Pete eats the hell out of that line. I love it. I, I love that conversation that Pete and Peggy have where they're like both trying to like talk about one thing, but the other person won't let them. <laughs> She's like, I want to keep this. <laughs> and uh, I think Wider even said uh, in the commentaries, he was like, Peggy's never received a gift in her life. It's like what you get out of this scene because <laughs> she's like, so like, ah, I don't want to give, give it back. Like I never get anything. It's beautiful. Um, the part where Don is like pouring the whiskey 
doesn't have a label. And so you'll notice throughout the show when that happens, it's because he's going to drunk drive. And so they don't want to show Don drinking a certain label and that be associated with drunk driving for obvious reasons. So that you know, this is a little bit of a hack. If you ever notice a character uh, drinking and the label of the bottle or even the bottle itself hasn't even been shown, that's a sign that they're going to do something very irresponsible. <laughs> so that's yeah. like um you remember how i don't know if it's still like this but like with apple related uh productions like anytime like a good character is on the phone they would have like a regular iphone but if, if there's a character that has like something else it's like they're the bad like you're not supposed to trust them because they wouldn't even have the gall to get a uh you know iphone and be you know <laughs> whatever that's yeah it's i'm watching hijack right now on apple tv the idris elba show uh, and yeah, guess what? He has an iPhone. His his wife has an iPhone. All the people hijacking the plane, they do not have iPhones. No comment. Mm. Yeah. So the part where the hitchhikers are talking about getting married to avoid the draft, uh, this was happening at that time, although not that much. Uh, it was still pretty early. Um, I think like Vietnam was not yet like really hitting the peak of cultural osmosis yet. It really was 1964 when this was picking up. Um, but a lot of people were hitch- uh, hitchhiking back then a lot more than they do today. And also this was a time when people were getting married um, to kind of get ahead of the whole draft. And so that that is accurate, although it can be a little bit of like unlikely for the time, um, but still, still a thing that was going on. But I mean, I think that scene makes sense though, in the sense of like, it's fitting that Dawn would be, uh, appealed by them not only a sense of like they're trying to like rebel against their parents by getting married early but they're trying to re- they're do- doing it because they're rebelling against the government to go to vietnam but you can tell he like, identifies with them he's a runaway yeah. too but they don't see him that way right ever. but it's then, like a tragic uh, moment for his character yeah but then like yeah like he even though he's advertising he gets sold a, a false bill of goods in a hotel yeah and they're not even that mean i mean they don't you know they, they you can tell that they're not like horrific, like they're not horrible people. They they take his money, they hurt him, but they leave his car. Uh, they don't kill him. Um, so ultimately, I think it's like the show kind of saying that these are desperate people more than anything else. Because I mean, the fact that they don't take his car, I, on the one hand, I see that as like, it, it's mercy, but I also think it's like similar to him. They don't want the baggage. They don't want some another man's car. Uh, they know that they can get caught more easily with another person's car. Whereas like just taking his money, they can basically get where they need to go and not worry about him pursuing them yeah but they were in such a rush that they didn't even fact check their letter and they uh yeah. misspelled wrong yeah well he even says it's like oh who's got time for that fancy education i did think about the parallels of don with the beatniks back from season one in this episode though because right don didn't fit in with the beatniks but it wasn't because of his age or you know it was just because of the person out the Don Draper persona he's, he's chosen to be, but here he's clearly like the old man in the room trying to stay hip, you know, Oh, phenobarbital. I'll take two. Yeah. Well, yeah, and- um, that goes back to like what Connie was saying though, early in the episode, just like us old people need young folks to, you know, take their energy or whatever he says. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, I think that that Weiner specifically said that the, they cast those teenagers, particularly not teenagers they're in their early 20s i think or he is the guy that they picked them because they look harmless and he wanted to make sure that they didn't look super dangerous or anything uh, because you do kind of want to see the the contrast between a guy like don who looks way more dangerous than them he looks very creepy 
you know, that smile on his face. Like he looks like he might be taking them somewhere to kill them. <laughs> Quite honestly, I get very, like, I get like heavy serial killer vibes. Obviously we know that's not really what's going to happen, but uh, it's just interesting, you know, to kind of see that, uh, that just how different these three people are. And then, um, when we do get to that part where Don like sees the ghost of his father, you know, that's, uh, I mean, what's, what, what is your, both your reads on that? You know, that's, I think like his conscience, right. That's, that's like, you know, his subconscious kind of trying to like call him out and, and be mean. Uh, great joke. I'll say good delivery, good punchline. Mm. Yeah. Well said. I was a lot more concerned with the fact that there was a Rainier beer can in the scene and that it was Quinn Nichols from, is it Quinn Nichols? Quinn something from Zoe 101. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the she's going to be in the new movie, the reboot movie. She's marrying uh what's his face, Logan or whatever. And, uh, yeah, this was her only a few years after that show, I think. So I didn't even include that in trivia because I was like, why bother? Can't bury the lead. Uh, we're almost through here. Uh, yeah, and also, Will, you already mentioned that the uh, the Reds were our reference, season two, episode one, where he gets prescribed them. Yeah. Uh, also, the roadside motel itself, it was shot on location, real place. Uh, even the, the warp and the mirror is real. And so they were kind of thrilled that they got to include that. And the last piece of trivia I told you was a lot. Um, the last piece of trivia here is uh, that the song that plays over the credits is called 16 Tons. And uh, it came out in 1955. And it tells the story of a coal miner who works for a company who mercilessly takes advantage of his labor, takes everything from him, and how he can't get ahead. I got that from uh, IMDb trivia. So, I'm pretty fitting, right? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm really glad you pointed that out because I thought that was such a, a great button for the episode. Yeah. And then, yeah, continuing that hillbilly theme and like a lot of uh, episodes have like featured music like that. And so you can tell that they're still still maintaining, I think, that uh, that motif in a way that I think is really cool. Well, and, that's so, yeah. Yeah. and that, you know, Don slash Dick is like a working class guy mm-hmm. who tries to be, uh, you know, a metropolitan person. But he still at heart is that kind of, you know, Southern boy, as we see with his dad uh, in the motel. Any last thoughts on the episode? It's a good episode. It's just so good, like all around. It's a good episode. You know, it's it's a, it's really solid. I would not say it's a masterpiece, but I did enjoy it. We didn't even mention the the double walk of shame that uh, Don and uh, Peggy have in the office. It's like her, she's wearing the same clothes. Her hair is like messy. And Don has like the shave, the aftershave, you know, and uh, or not the aftershave. The, uh, what is it called? The five o'clock shadow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of band. course, the fender bender. Yeah. Band. And it's it's known between them, right? But it's unspoken. It's just great. Yeah. They're like, oh, bad night for you, too. They, they don't have to say it. I, we didn't even talk really about um, Don just like, whew, like laying it out on Peggy. I mean, just wow. Like, I think, um, oh, yeah, there were two things from this. I wrote down, um, Weiner has said that, like what he says to Betty about, like, you're making this about yourself. He considers that one of the, harsh, one of the harshest things he's ever said to Betty, Don has. And then when he's talking to Peggy and he's saying all that stuff to her, um, really, it's like what he wants to say to Roger because he's in such a bad mood, but he can't like tell Roger like how mad he is at him. And so he takes it out on Peggy. And that is something, Will, that like this moment here, uh, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that this is like a life core memory moment for Peggy Olsen, because I think that it's like the core of like her and Don's dynamic moving forward. You can tell. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really, I mean, also just the delivery, because like what he's saying uh, inherently isn't like too awful, but the delivery and the tone and just the meanness and the coldness of it is what really... Way too harsh. Yeah. Yeah, way too harsh. Yeah. But yeah, I kind of figured that this wasn't going to go gently into the good night. <laughs> we'll be back next week to talk about episode eight, 
Uh, I forget what episode today is called. Let me look it up here. Uh, Souvenir. That's right. Uh, Phil Abraham episode. Uh, look forward to that. We'll be uh, finishing up season three within the next uh, month or so, guys. I mean, we're getting we're getting close. And uh, this has been, I think, Will, you already referenced it. Uh, a lot of really good episodes in a row. And I, I'm, I'm happy that we're just in the thick of it of season three because it, it truly is, I think, for some people, it's their favorite season. Um, other people, it's like their first favorite season, that kind of thing. So we're in for it. We got some stuff ahead.